This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. The featured author in this episode is Magnus Magnusson. He was known when he was alive as the chair of Mastermind on BBC One. But he wrote books, and there's a book that is still in print, which was published 25 years ago. It's called Scotland, The Story of a Nation. It's a tome. Uh, It's an entertaining story of a nation. And this interview was recorded when the Scottish National Party weren't such a force as they are now. So this is a conversation with a man who knew what he was talking about, but it's a conversation of its time. It's time, the year 2000. I asked Magnus if he, when he embarked on this project, if he followed in the footsteps of another Scotsman. Yes, I followed the footsteps of Walter Scott. Walter Scott wrote a book called Tales of a Grandfather in 1830, 170 years ago, which was the only Scottish history most people in Scotland knew because that became the sort of the received idea of what had happened to Scotland. And he was a great historical novelist, of course, so he was a marvellous storyteller. And Tales of a Grandfather were the great gripping yarns of Scottish history But 170 years later, modern historians are saying, well, wait a minute, that was okay for how they saw history in 1830. It's not okay for how we see history now. So the idea was to um, take as my guide, Walter Scott, follow his story and see how modern historians were saying, now, wait a minute, his interpretation has now been shown to be wrong. There's more fact, there are, there are, there's more research being done. And the history of Scotland was rather more complex and simply these great flaring battles and failures and defeats and, and triumphs and, and tragedies. Now, is this the obvious time to do it? When yes, yes, because, I mean, Scotland is now, and, and England too, on the verge of a new chapter in our relationship. Scotland with its new parliament, which started last year. Um, there'd been throughout the 90s much talk of devolution. Not so much of independence, but of devolution, of how we could live with a much larger, more powerful uh, nation as equal partners, basically. That, that's what everybody in Scotland was looking to. And they were beginning to ask questions about, is it any use being British anymore? What do we mean by British? We did all right out of the British Empire, but with no British Empire, why aren't we just Scots? Now, the English couple of weeks ago they had a, a week in the BBC of about Englishness so we're all looking at our identities and how we should uh, comport ourselves in the future towards one another I think that the word independence anyway has changed in its meaning it's not about the Battle of Bannockburn and the declaration of our bros as long as a hundred of us remain alive we'll fight for independence it's about the quality of self-determination which any partner in a marriage can have And I would like to think that independence for Scotland means simply that, that one should have dependence and interdependence and independence all together, just as in a a fine modern marriage where everybody's identity remains. Is the sense of identity in Scotland strong? You make the point, I think, that, um, was it the opening of the Parliament 
uh, was on a certain anniversary of what yes. Wallace That's did. right, you and, know, and so, I mean, so was the referendum. It yes. was on another anniversary. Yes. Now, is somebody thinking this out, or is it pure coincidence? I, I'm quite sure it can't be a coincidence that out of one out of 365 days, you choose the day which is a significant anniversary in the long road to nationhood. And that's why it was chosen by the civil servants and by the politicians. It was a... It was an unspoken thing that for those who know their history, they think, ah, that's interesting. And I want everybody to know the history. I want everybody to recognize that there's history all around them. You know, wherever you go, if you look at a street sign, there's a history there. I want people to look up and see it, look down and see it. I want them to be able to go on the hoof to places where history happened, where there are local people still who will say, did you not know that, Magnus? Well, this is where the battle took place. The Victoria Infirmary in Glasgow is on top of it right now, but that was a key turning point in Scottish history and in English history too, because that is a battle where Mary Queen of Scots lost, fled to England, imprisoned for 19 years before she was executed by her cousin, simply because she was becoming such a nuisance. She was, as Elizabeth called her, the daughter of debate. And it was a debate that cost her her life. And then to go all around England, stirring battles and stirring things that happened. And in, I remember I went to Westminster Hall. Now it's a great place, Westminster Hall, you know. And you've got the, the plaque of Charles I where he stood when he was tried before he was executed. Not far away from it is a plaque that nobody sees. They walk over it. And that's a plaque to William Wallace, who was also reigned in that very spot. Now I remember when, when I was when I was looking at this, I said, oh, I found something, I found something. And then suddenly I saw a pair of pinstriped trousers standing beside me. And I looked up, and there was a, an old friend of mine I'd worked with him for a long time, Lord Selborne. He was the chairman of the Joint Nature Conservation Committee. He said, you don't need to kneel before me, my boy. <laughs> he said, you know, I have walked over that plaque for 20 years without knowing it was there. And I think it's important that we do know that these things are there, because then next, of course, I went to Smithfield, which is where Wallace was butchered, I think that's the right term, in his execution in 1305. And there, in the railings underneath the plaque, fresh poses of flowers. They're there every day, every week. Memory is kept green. And I think a historical memory should be kept green, because if we, if we lose our past, if we lose our history, we emasculate ourselves as people, the English as well as the Scots. Just taking Wallace as an example, he was recently done over by Hollywood, wasn't he? Yes, brilliantly. You, you approve of that? I loved it. I know the, the academic historians tut-tutted and said this is not what happened. Well, frankly, we don't know what happened because the Bruce dynasty, which followed Wallace, wrote him out of history altogether. They didn't want to know about Wallace in case he overshadowed their prime hero, Robert the Bruce. And then, but the folk stories grew around him. There are more place names in Scotland connected with Wallace than any other person in Scotland. Every hill, every cave, every well, every tree, every wood, most streets, they're all named after Wallace. Because after his death, while the Bruce dynasty and their spin doctors were writing him out, the people of Scotland refused to have him written out of history. The folk stories developed around the campfires, and all the most unlikely exploits accrete to him as this great hero figure. And then he was written up in the middle of the 14th century by a minstrel called Blind Harry. And Blind Harry wrote a quasi-historical epic called The Bruce. And that is what Hollywood used as a basis for their, their film. This was folk history as opposed to the very meagre history that we know of him. Who's to say which is the better? 
All I know is that it had an enormous effect. It chimed with the heartstrings of people in Scotland and the world over, because this was a man who never, ever once betrayed his devotion to his own country, and that's what made him so great. Someone else who was done over was Macbeth. Yes. <laughs> he was by, done by, over by, by the Willie Shakespeare. Yes. Willie Shakespeare. And this is really everything that people know about Macbeth because of the power of the play. But in actual fact, Macbeth was not a vicious regicide who killed a gentle old king who was his guest in his castle. King Duncan, in fact, was a young tearaway of 26 who had wrecked Scotland by the most rash attempts to invade England. There was a popular uprising against them, led by Macbeth from the north of Scotland, and they met in battle, and, and he was killed fair and square, as it were. Then for 17 years, in fact, Macbeth became one of the great kings of medieval Scotland and is remembered as such in the Scottish Chronicles and also in the fact that one of them says, in his time there were good seasons. Now, for good seasons to happen, it had nothing to do with how good a king you were. You're a lucky king because economics mm. decide the history of, of a nation rather than just the, the character of a king, although that helps as well. And he didn't, he wasn't killed at Dunsinane, as Shakespeare says. He was killed in a wee village called Lumfannon in Aberdeenshire. And I went there, went to the post office, and they said, ah, there's a Macbeth cairn you ought to go and see. There's a Macbeth rock in that farmer's field up there. There's Macbeth well, where he had his last drink before he died. Well, it's not much of a well, but, but it's all there. It's still, still living there. And Macbeth, I think, is a great example of how history can become enormously distorted by the power of the pen. Shakespeare's pen, even Sir Walter Scott's pen. The pen is mightier than the sword in many cases. I love the fact you start at the beginning. Who were the Scots? What happened to the Picts? I mean, the Picts were called that just because they were painted, weren't they? Yes, the Romans called them the Picti because they seemed to have used woad or tattooing of some kind. Um, that's all we know about them, really. All that they've left are these wonderful carved picture stones and a language called Ogham, which nobody can decipher yet. But what we do know now from, from comparative histories of the rest of the area is that the Picts were a, ma a major civilization in Scotland until they were squeezed by the Scoti, the Scots, who came from Ireland. They came in from the west. Then the Vikings came down, bless their hearts, my ancestors, and they squeezed the Scoti from the west, further to the east, into Pictland. And then a joint king, who was both a Pict and a Scot, took over. And the Picts disappeared because they were simply subsumed into the larger uh, comity of, of tribes and nations that was in Scotland at the time. But they were clearly a marvellous people. Their art is superb. And there was one key battle that they fought against the Anglians coming up from Northumbria, who had taken over the whole of lowland Scotland, picked land as well. And they met at a battle called Nechton's Mere, which some people say was as significant as Bannockburn itself. And I found an expert, and he took me to the area, and there he stood and said, now see that hill over there? That's where the Picts were in ambush, and here was Egfrith of Northumbria coming up this way, and then bang, they hit them, and they slaughtered them. But there's one wonderful picture stone at Avalemno nearby. And that shows the battle. It shows because you can tell the difference between the Anglians and the Picts. And the horses, they had different kinds of horses. The Picts didn't use stirrups, but they could ride the horses with their knees. And that meant they had both hands free. Now, the 
uh, Anglians had to one hand on their reins, and so they had only one weapon or a shield, and that, that clobbered them. And it's a wonderful scene, this, this great stone that's standing there, and you can follow exactly what happened. Ah, that's, you see the Picts attacking, you see the Anglians retreating, and you see right at the bottom a big, big corpse, Eggfrith, with ravens plucking it at his eyes. And that is a story, the battle, it's a sort of war co correspondence dispatch from the scene. It's wonderful. What did the Romans do for uh, Scotland? I mean, I was talking after I'd read the bit um, to a long-time resident of Bearsden who didn't even know there's a Roman bath there. I know. Nope, not, not many people do. And they don't know that when they drive north uh, past that, they're in fact going over the old Antonine Wall. The Romans didn't have very much lasting effect. They had a tremendous effect on the lowlands when they came because they taught them all sorts of things. They taught them about trade and about surpluses and about, uh, you know, you can make a bob or two working for the Roman army. But north of the Antonine Wall, they were all always recalcitrant. I mean, there was a big Roman sweep up somewhere into the northeast. The Battle of Mons Graupius. Sounds like Grampian. Nobody knows where it is. I actually think it was Culloden, at the site of Culloden, because that was the last place where the retreating Picts could gather an army before they all melted away for the autumn harvests. And that's where the battle was fought. And one thing the Romans did leave us was that Tacitus wrote a magnificent speech which he put into the mouth of the Scottish leader, Galcacus, before on the night of the battle. There's no possible way in which Tacitus would have known what he said, but he put in one of the great orations about freedom ever written and anti-Roman, saying the Romans, they come here, they make a desolation and they make it and they call it peace. It's wonderful stuff, heroic, stirring stuff. And I love these stories, these tales of history. I mean, obviously, loads of text, but there are photographs. I, I wanted to go to this big, that, that big round Ah, the Brock of Musa. Yeah, now, is that as awe-inspiring? Because that's been there for 800, 900 years? Oh, more than that. It's been there for nearly 2,000 years. Nearly 2,000 years? Yeah. And it's it's wonderfully preserved. As you can see, it is just it's like one of these sort of cooling towers, mm. huge things. And that they seem to have been built by the ancestors of the pigs. We're not quite sure who did them, as places of refuge in times of trouble from their neighbours. And they were wonderfully easy to defend because there was only that one entrance, very small entrance, quite high up, and one guy could hold it against anybody. In fact, that was shown because in Viking times, the Brachamusa came into its own because an eloping couple from Norway <laughs> came across, landed on Musa, holed up over winter, and the girl's father was chuntering about outside, trying to, to break into the place, couldn't do it, and at spring he said, hey, your daughter's preggers, by the way, forget it. <laughs> and so he said, oh, to hell with it. Let them get married, and that was it. That was Magnus Magnusson talking to me about his book, Scotland, the Story of a Nation, when it was first published... 25 years ago. So that conversation happened in the year 2000, and that's why some of the references to Scottish politics sounded a bit historical. This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman.